Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor at Christ the King, and I am glad to see you. If you are a guest or visitor, welcome. Uh, we're happy that you are here. And uh, if you have time afterwards to stick around, I'd love to meet you and, and visit with you and, and greet you formally, but, but welcome. We are glad that you are uh, with us this morning as we come to worship our God as we sit under his word. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. So for these uh, four Sundays of Advent, um, we, we actually have the privilege this year of having Christmas on Sunday as well. So there's, there's still only four Sundays of Advent and then the first Sunday of Christmas. But, but leading up to Advent, these four Sundays, we're looking at the, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke and, and these chapters are dictating, they're telling to us the birth narrative of how our Lord Jesus came, of how he was born of the Virgin Mary, of how the angels came and declared that he would come, of the celebration that occurs. And last week we started with uh, a, a song, a hymn, the first of the Advent hymns that was uh, sung by Mary in her Magnificat. And this morning we have the second of the Advent hymns with Zechariah. Zechariah is celebrating the birth of his son, John, who is the proclaimer. He is the pointer of the coming Messiah. And so Zechariah's story is before us this morning. And what's interesting about his story is how Zechariah progresses. He moves from this place of doubt to a place of belief. And out of his belief, he praises. And so let's listen to this belief and praise that comes through the mouth of Zechariah. We're going to begin our reading in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would call him would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, every year about this time of year, the Oxford English Dictionary, excuse me, releases their uh, word of the year. And so in years past, it's been uh, very influential words, very important and profound words. They, they looked at the, the culture around us. They looked at social media. <clears throat> Excuse me. They looked at the various things uh, that are being printed in newspaper articles and magazine articles. And they, they find this one word to encapsulate what has happened in this past year. And so in the past, the, these, year, these words were things like selfie and uh, unfriend, you know, these really important, you know, (laughs) cultural words. Well, this year, as they looked at at our culture, and perhaps as they looked at the last few months uh, that occurred in our culture, they decided that the word of the year was post-truth, post-truth. So I guess you can make it one word if you put the hyphen there, but but this double word, post-truth, they looked at the world, they looked at Uh, the things that are being said, the things that are being written, and they decide that this is the word that encapsulates 2016. And they define post-truth as this. They said that post-truth is circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinions than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And so whoever it is that decides what the word of the year is at the Oxford English Dictionary, they they looked and they said that, that our culture in this past year was driven more by falsehoods than objective facts. I imagine that one of the reasons why they thought about this and one of the reasons why they, they were inclined towards this idea of post-truth was because of the prevalence of false news. Maybe you've seen that, false news, right? So if you've uh, been reading articles online, if you've been reading uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post, you've been reading uh, all sorts of different news uh, uh, periodicals, then you will see that false news is actually something that has become very prominent. Now, what is false news? False news are newspaper articles or news items that are put forth that have the inclination towards truth but are really false. So they're not news items that everyone knows is false, right? So don't think about satire. Don't think about the onion or the Babylon Bee. Those those are very funny, right? (laughs) uh, Yeah, some of you know they're funny. Y'all should know these are funny, okay? Uh, That's satire, okay? It's satire. Everyone knows it's not true. Everyone knows it's false. But there are other uh, news uh, newsworthy items that are being put out that, that everyone doesn't know is false. In fact, they're being promoted as truth, and yet they are completely false. It's become so rampant, it's become so uh, a part of our culture over the last few months that regular newspaper outlets and news uh, outlets have started to write about them. So the New York Times and the Washington Post in the last couple of weeks, they've been flooded with op-eds about false news. It's interesting, right? The 
the true news is writing about false news. Um, in fact, it's gone so bad that, that I started to wonder, I mean, can I even trust Facebook anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can't. Um, and so what this is, is basically we're looking around and we're seeing the news that is being put forth, not just by ourselves, but by our friends, by things that are being linked to in newspaper articles, on the news, on TV, on the internet. We're looking at all these things and we start to wonder, is this really true? I mean, that's our response. We start to doubt the, the veracity of what we're reading. And we don't just do it with the news, but we do it with one another. And we do it with social media and we begin to doubt. In fact, doubt has become so prominent in our culture that it's almost become virtuous. That if you actually believe someone, that if you take them at their word, that if you give them the benefit of the doubt, you're, you're just patronized as being naive. That we're supposed to doubt. Do you guys get that feel? That we shouldn't believe what we hear and what we see. And it's not just in our culture, it's not just in the news that we read, it's not just on the things that are popping up in our Twitter feed, but we're actually encouraged, especially during this time of this, the year, to start to doubt the veracity of the Bible. Every year around this season, there are articles that are published that, that encourage us to doubt the validity of the virgin birth, that encourage us to doubt what it is that the Bible says about Jesus. Every year, we can read articles that say, no, 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 Mary wasn't a virgin. She was just a young girl. Jesus didn't really believe that he was God. That was actually something that was imposed upon him by his later followers. He, he never claimed that sort of a thing. They're trying to encourage us, not just to doubt the world around us, but to doubt God himself. It's easy for us to start to fall into that pattern, to start to wonder, is this really true? Just make-believe or myth or story. You know, as I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about doubt and the prominence that it has in our culture right now, I realized that, that the encouragement towards doubt actually isn't very new. It's not novel at all, but that doubt has been part of the human experience really since almost the very beginning. I mean, do you remember in Genesis 3 when the serpent slithered into the garden, and he tempted Eve, what did he say to her? Did God really say you would die? No, you, you won't really die. Surely, if you eat of it, you will be like him. What was the serpent doing? He was infusing their, their situation, their experience with doubt. That's what Eve did. She doubted the goodness, the love, the well-being that God was given to her. Started to doubt. And ever since, people have doubted and wondered, can God be trusted? Is God good? Is he trustworthy? And that's actually the root of Zechariah's story. See, before we get to this song of praise, this wonderful Benedictus, that's what it's called, of Zechariah, what we have is him doubting. You see, before Mary showed up, 
with Elizabeth, before the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, the angel Gabriel came and he spoke to Zechariah, and Zechariah responded with doubt. With doubt. And so what I want us to see this morning is how this great man of God, this follower of Jesus, how he moves from doubt to belief and from belief to praise. But in order to do that, we're going to have to actually start at the beginning of Zechariah's story. So if you have a Bible, um, I'd encourage you to look at the beginning of chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, I'm sorry we didn't have room to print it in our order of service. So you can, I don't know, maybe like pull out your phone, you know, it's okay. You, for right now, you can pull out your phone and, and look it up. But, um, but in the beginning of chapter one of Luke, because that's where Zechariah's story begins. You see, the situation in Luke 1, 5 through basically 20, uh, 25 or so, is that, that Zechariah is a priest, okay? He's a priest, so he's a holy man of God, okay? He's, he's a professional holy person, and he's working in the temple, and he's doing the duties that, that the priests were supposed to do. And as he's going about his priestly duties, what happens? The angel Gabriel appears and declares to him that your wife is going to be pregnant. Now, this is a cause for celebration and rejoicing, right? But that's not what Zechariah does. He actually wonders and he queries. He's unsure. How can this be? Because, you see, Zechariah is too old to have children, and his wife is too old to become pregnant. And so what does he say? Instead of rejoicing and celebrating in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That's actually not a bad question, is it? I mean, if you're Zechariah, you know, you're, we don't know how old he is, but let's just say he's like in his 70s or 80s. That would be a legitimate question, right? That's not supposed to happen, angel. How is this going to be? And in fact, this is very similar to the question that Mary asked. So a little while later, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be pregnant. And what does she say? How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. That's not supposed to happen. Now, what's interesting is that even though these questions that both Zechariah and Mary ask are very similar, the response of the angel is very different to both of them. See, what the angel says in verse 20, if you look there to Zechariah, is this. He says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. He rebukes him. That's interesting because he doesn't do that to Mary. Mary, who asks a very similar question, doesn't get a rebuke. She doesn't get disciplined. She doesn't, get, uh, she doesn't get her tongue stuff closed. No, instead, the angel Gabriel interacts with her. Mary doesn't receive this same rebuke. So there must be something different between Mary and Zechariah's questions. And the angel Gabriel tells us at the end of verse 20. He says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. So that leads us to conclude that Mary's question was a question that was seeking understanding. It was birthed out of attempting to understand how this could be, whereas Zechariah's question was birthed out of disbelief and doubt. So the angel, the angel makes him mute and leaves him unable to speak, silent with his doubts 
the entire pregnancy for nine months. Doubted. It's easy to doubt. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning because, well, it's Christmas. And that's what you're supposed to do. During Advent, during Christmas, during Easter, you're, you're supposed to come to church. Maybe, maybe that's why you're here. Or, or maybe you're not a Christian here and you're, you're coming because you have questions, you have doubts, you have challenging thoughts to this passage. Maybe you struggle to believe that something like this could ever happen. Angels and angels making men mute and virgin births and heavenly choruses going up. Maybe you struggle with that. Well, if that's you, I just want you to know I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you would come with your doubts and your challenges. You're, you're welcome in this place. And you need to take your doubts seriously. You aren't just supposed to put them on the shelf or sweep them under the rug, but you should take them seriously. But you should not just leave yourself in your doubts, but you should also be willing to doubt your doubts, to challenge your challenges. And the way that you should doubt your doubts and be open to challenging your challenges is by considering them in light of what the Bible says. And when we bring our doubts to the Bible, what we find is that the Bible holds up pretty well. The Bible actually gives us good reason for why the world is the way it is. We have questions about evil and about death and about sadness and brokenness. The Bible gives us answers to it. Maybe not always the answers that we understand, but it, it gives us rationale. The, the Bible gives us a solution to the problems that we face. The Bible looks at the world around us and it actually gives us a good understanding for what we experience. The Bible takes the characters and doesn't whitewash them and, and sand away all their rough edges but presents them accurately. The, the Bible's rooted in history. You come with your doubts. Don't ignore them, but weigh them against Scripture. Be willing to doubt your doubts. You know, I know most of you, and I know many of you, aren't coming with those sorts of doubts. You're not coming with doubts about whether Jesus really could be born of a virgin or whether Jesus really was the Son of God. No, you're, you're convinced of that. Our doubts, our doubts, aren't in that sort of realm. Our doubts are more like, has God departed from me? Does he really have my good in mind? Is he really going to be with me? Those are our doubts. We look at our lives, and, and it's not that we're needing certainty in, in these areas that require miracles. We have these doubts in the day-to-day -day lives, in the normal aspects of our lives, in our vocations, in our families, in interacting with our parents, in interacting with our coworkers, in our classrooms. Is God really for us? Is he with us or has he left us? If, would, would God just show me with great clarity? Maybe, maybe he would write it in the sky. Have you guys ever said that? <laughs> of course you have, because so have I. I don't know if he's there, so if he would just make himself known. In fact, the other day, 
a couple weeks ago, I was in the car. I was talking to a friend of mine, a pastor, a PCA pastor, so you know he's pretty spiritual, right? That's <laughs> uh, so funny. Um, so, um, so I'm talking to my friend on the phone, and he, uh, he's in another state at another church, and he has a big decision that he has to make, and he's weighing it out. And this decision, how he uh, decides on it, what he decides about it, is going to affect him and his family and his church. And so it's pretty weighty. He's feeling it. And he says to me, he goes, Penny, if God would just, if he would just show it to me in the clouds, then I would know exactly what I was supposed to do. And I wouldn't have to doubt whether this is the right decision or the wrong decision and all these sorts of things. And is God really leading me this way or that way? If he would just make it clear to me. And I laughed, and I said to my friend, but even if he did, you would still doubt him. You would look at it, and you would go, well, well maybe that wasn't the word for me. Maybe that was that other person <laughs> who was looking to the clouds. Or maybe, maybe it was for me, but maybe I'm interpreting it incorrectly, right? I have the wrong hermeneutical process to, to understand this. Or, or maybe it was just the way that the wind blew and the cloud just looks like it's saying do this, but it's really not. And he laughed because he knew I was right. I mean, Zechariah was a priest in the temple, and an angel appeared, and he still doubted. So what makes us think that cloud formations are going to give us certainty? You see, doubt isn't just an experience of the non-Christian, of the person who doesn't believe. It's also the experience of the believer. Just our doubt looks different. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear as well, you need to doubt your doubts. You need to be willing to challenge your challenges. And the way that we doubt our doubts is through belief. Through belief. Not always understanding. That's not what I'm saying. Because there will be often times where we don't understand how God is at work and we don't know what God is going to do, but belief that when he says he's going to work, he really will. That when he has said, I will not leave you nor forsake you, that he really is with you. That that is what we believe. We believe him and we trust him because he has shown himself to be believable. Because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. We look at his character and we can have confidence that he will live and work and act in light of his character. This reminds me of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My favorite scene in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when Peter and Susan are talking to the professor. If you haven't read the book, then, then let me just fill you in on where we are in the story. Lucy, the youngest child, and her brother Edmund have discovered this land, this this amazing place, this magical place called Narnia through the wardrobe. Lucy discovered it on her own, and, and she comes back and tells everyone no one believes, but then Edmund stumbles across it, and, and so he's been there as well. And so Lucy thinks everyone will believe us because Edmund has been there, but what does Edmund do? That wretched little boy, right? Like <laughs> He lies and he deceives and says it's just a big hoax. I was just joking, it's not true. 
So Peter and Susan, the older brother and older sister, are concerned for their younger sister. And so they go to the professor who owns the home that they're living in. And they say to the professor all that has happened. That Lucy and Edmund are saying that there's this magical world, but, but they have trouble believing it. Because how could there be a land on the other side of the wardrobe with fawns and talking beavers? It, it just can't exist. And so the professor asks them, well, well, surely Lucy has been prone to dece- deception, right? And Edmund, he's the trustworthy one? They go, well, n- no, that's, that's not the case. In fact, Lucy has never been known to be deceptive. She's always been honest. She's always been truthful. And do you remember what the professor said? You should believe her. As, as crazy as it might sound that there are fawns and talking beavers and a land of wood on the other side of the wardrobe, because she has been trustworthy in the past, you should trust her today. That's what we should do with the Lord. He has shown himself to be trustworthy time and time again. And so even in those places and in those times when we don't know how he will work it out, we don't know what he will do, we can trust him. We can believe him because he has shown himself to be believable. And for Zechariah, this isn't the first time John has been announced that his birth would come. No, the first announcement of John's birth came in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Zechariah. When the prophet Isaiah, looking towards the Messiah, said, Before the Messiah comes, there will be one who will come and declare the way of the Lord. He will prepare the way for the kingdom of God. God made a promise, and now he's bringing it to fruition. He's shown himself to be trustworthy, and so we can trust him as well. Friends, we should and we can doubt our doubts and move to belief. That's what Zechariah does. He doesn't remain in his doubt, but he moves from doubt to belief. He was unable to speak for nine months. Nine months, that is a long time to think. That's a lot of silence. Nine months? I mean, try nine minutes. (laughs) But he couldn't speak for nine months. He had nine months to think about what he had heard and what he had seen that day. To, To think about the child growing in his wife's belly. To watch her belly getting bigger and for him to be wondering and and thinking and wishing he would have said something different that morning or that afternoon. Nine months to consider his doubts. And now that the son is born, how does he respond? Not with doubt, but with belief. What he says, if you turn now to our passage that's printed in your order of service, they come and they ask about naming this boy They're going to name him Zechariah, but his mother says, no, call him John, which perplexes them because there is no John in their family. And then when he has the chance, he writes on a tablet, his name is John. His name is John. We know that he believes because his belief was giving birth to obedience. 
It was giving birth to obedience. He was obeying what the angel had declared, that this son would be named John. And as soon as he does this, as soon as he obeys and he shows his belief, his tongue is loosed, and what does he do? He sings. He sings and he praises God. He puts aside his belief, his doubt, and he replaces it with belief, and he praises God, and he praises him for his pursuit. What he does in this song He praises God for his pursuit. Did you hear the language of how God has sought after his people? In verse 68, he has visited and redeemed them. In verse 69, he's raising up a horn amongst them. In verse 70, he sent his holy prophets from of old to speak. Mercy that was promised is coming to fruition. The covenant that was made, he's remembering in verse 72. He's sending John as a prophet who's preparing the way of Christ. He's pursuing not just Zechariah, but he's pursuing us. And ultimately, through John, after John, through Christ, he will achieve that pursuit. I mean, look at verses 78 through 79. The the man Zechariah, this priest, he sings, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, visit us, Pursue us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful picture. That God's people were in darkness and were surrounded by death, but God pursued us by entering into that darkness and scattering the darkness and taking us from death and bringing us into life by shining his light into the dark. That he has pursued us. That this is what God has been doing since the very beginning. As soon as doubt entered into the world, he has been pursuing us. Do you remember, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what was the first thing God said? Where are you? He came into the garden and he asked, where are you? This wasn't God being ignorant of their location. This was God inviting them to come out of hiding to come out of the darkness and to come to him. He pursued them. That's what he's doing to us. He's pursuing us. He's entering into the darkness by sending his son to take on flesh, to live amongst the darkness, to bring his light, to call us out of it so that we might have life. He's inviting us out of hiding to be pursued what he does. That's why Jesus came. That's what John is going to proclaim, make way the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. That's why Jesus would come, why he would be born of Mary, why he'd live and die and rise again to call us out of hiding, out of darkness, and give us his life, his light to pursue us. That's why Zechariah praises God. Because God has pursued us, but this pursuit isn't an end of itself. Jesus didn't just come and take on flesh. But Zechariah praises God also because not only God pursues us, but also because God forgives us. He forgives us. Now look, the the structure of the song is, is two parts. Verses 68 through 
75 are directed specifically to God. And what we see there is he's reminding, uh, he's singing and remembering what God has done of old and how he's fulfilling his prophets and his, his promises. But in verse 76, Zechariah redirects his song. He sings about his son, this child. So 76 through 79 are focusing on what this child will do and, and who he is. And who is he? He is God's prophet, the prophet of the Most High. He's coming to declare that the Messiah is coming, that God's pursuit is coming to fruition. And when the Messiah comes, what does he do in verse 77? He will give knowledge of the salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He will forgive the sins of his people. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. That is the point. That salvation would come. That God's people would no longer walk in darkness and we would no longer seek that which leads to death and we would no longer stumble along the way, but that he would come, that we would have light and life and walk in the way of the Lord. This is only accomplished through the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus would take on flesh and dwell amongst us. That's why he would go to his death and he would rise again, that your sins, they would be forgiven. It is only he that can do it. It is only he that can do it, and he is able and willing to do it. What he does, he pursues his people, and he forgives us all of our sins. John, this prophet, was preparing the way of the Lord Preparing the way for this one who would give grace and mercy. And this is why Zechariah praises God. This is why he sings. Because salvation has come. Friends, our world, it is filled with doubt and fake news. But the message of Advent is this, that, that we need doubt no more. That we, would, we need not doubt any longer. That is the message of Advent, that, that we don't have to believe fake news, but that we can believe good news. Good news that Christ, the promised one, the one who has pursued us, the one who forgives our sins, the one who is worthy of all of our praise, he has come. Friends, do not doubt. Do not doubt, instead believe. Believe the true and good news that Jesus, the one who casts away our doubts, who calls us out of darkness and into his light, the one who gives us life in the place of death, he has come. That is good news to be believed. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would minister to us and show us the goodness the truthfulness of your good news, that you, Lord Jesus, you have come. Father, we ask that you would help us to bring our doubts before you, to weigh them against your word, and to see that you are faithful, that you are good, and that you have always been faithful. Help us to doubt our doubts and to believe to believe, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who has come to save us from our sins, the one who has pursued us, and the one who loves us.
That is the good news that we believe. We pray in Jesus' name.